It's like I was here, then I was disappeared. Sorry about that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is where we will be hanging out this morning. We'll pick up uh, where Luke left off. Actually, I'll go back a verse uh, to, to verse 5 and start from there. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we are currently walking through the book of Acts. We've been here for about a year and a half now, and we're in, in the chapter 12 now. And so, anyway, thank you for being here. Uh, as you're flipping to Acts chapter 12, you probably may already be there. Uh, I kind of want to kind of set the stage, if you will, or set the table uh, give us a lens to w- in which to look at or look through when we're coming into this text in Acts 12. We're already familiar with it, with Luke introducing you last week with uh, uh, the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter, uh, Herod's attempt to kind of uh, wipe out or stop the gospel and gain popularity and things like that, but kind of give us a different lens in w- to which look to look to this scripture uh, this morning. Uh, Monday morning when I got to my office, and we sat down and began to think through this text and how to preach it and things like that. Uh, the analogies of, that the scripture gives of being a Christian kind of started popping into my head. And so I kind of just kind of thinking through like what is different analogies that we read through the t- New Testament of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus or a Christian, if you will. And like obvious, obvious ones like uh, the bride of Christ came to my mind and uh, the church, the body of Christ, the sons and daughters. And I, be, I began just thinking through those and and to be honest with you, in our, uh, I'm not, not to get too much onto our toes already this morning, but in our culture uh, today, definitely in our, even in our church culture, that uh, a lot of the things that we talk about and the things we think about in our relationship with God is kind of like, <laughs> we're caught up in all of our feels, if you were caught up in our emotions and we're caught up in, in how, how God makes us feel and what we've done. A lot of things, when it becomes a Christian, we only think about it almost like a romanticized version of like, just God, obviously he's my heavenly father, but we talk about lovey-dovey and these feelings and emotions that we have and we chase after these things. And those are right, right? We are the bride of Christ. We are the ones uh, that, that the father has promised the son to, to give in return for his death and his sacrifice and his, the finished work. Like we are the ones that, that God is preparing a bride of people uh, from all nations, all tribes, all languages, all skin colors, that one day as the result of, and for the reward for the son's work, we will be presented to him as his, as his reward. Like we are the bride of Christ and there's a relationship there. We are sons and daughters. He, he, we go to him as a heavenly father and he delights in our prayers. He delights in us seeking after him. We are sons and daughters. We're the body, we're the church, but scripture also gives other analogies of what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, our culture, like I said, is all about how I feel and, you know, these lovey-dovey things. Uh, and and we, we gravitate towards the bride and sons and daughters. Uh, but Scripture also give analogies like we're disciples, that we are those who uh, deny to ourselves and take up a yoke of a Savior and his teaching. But there's another one that we don't talk about unless we're little kids and that we're soldiers of Jesus Christ. See, in our culture, we don't, we don't like to go that route. We like to go to just the, the good, feely things that we talk about how God loves me and how he makes me feel. And I go to scripture and understand that I'm beautifully and wonderfully made uh, and that he works all things for the good. That's where we gravitate towards. But also when, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, hey, you're, be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. 
And it's not just kids' songs. I, when I thought about that this Monday morning, I thought about Evie whenever she'd come on and she say, she'll start singing, I may never march in the... You know, those songs, it's not just a catchy song for kids to sing, but Scripture actually tells us that when we become followers of Jesus, that we're now a soldier. We've been enlisted into a fight. We've been enlisted into the, the very armor army of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is not just Timothy. This is for all of us. This is not no soldier it gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In Ephesians 6, we're told to take on what? The whole armor of God. In 2 Corinthians, we read about the weapons of warfare. In 1 Timothy, we're told to fight the good fight. In Philippians, uh, we see Epaphroditus, who Paul says he's a fellow soldier. And again, in Philemon, he, he calls somebody a fellow soldier. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is this, this kingdom advancement. Uh, this kingdom advancement is not just people who are becoming sons and daughters, but the kingdom, the reign of Christ is extending. Uh, when we first get to the book of Acts chapter 1 or chapter 2, when the church is born, the borders of the kingdom was in Jerusalem. Everybody with me? So let's get there. Think for a moment. Like the borders of the kingdom was in Jerusalem. Then as the gospel is being preached, as the persecution happens, the church goes and the gospel is being preached, and it gets to Samaria, and it gets to the office of the Ethiopian eunuch, then it gets to uh, Cornelius. What, what we're seeing happens happening is this kingdom, its borders are advancing. Its borders are getting bigger and bigger because we understand that as a child of God, that we are in a, we're in a kingdom. We're part of a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, this kingdom that was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus. Right? When Christ came, he, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, he, he inaugurated the last times or the last days. They began, and he began to build his kingdom. Now, it's a kingdom that is that is not yet. It's one that's here that's not here yet. It's one that is being built into the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. And this kingdom, it's already and not yet. We, it's been inaugurated when Christ came the first time. Now, it will be culminated in a second coming where the, where the Lord will physically, visibly reign on earth. There will be a physical kingdom in which we understand that when the second coming of Christ comes, there will be a kingdom that is physically established. From the first coming to the second coming, what we've seen is through the preaching of the gospel that those borders of that kingdom continues to expand more and more. God's kingdom advances through the preaching of the gospel. The borders of the kingdom are expanding more and more, and the way that God is expanding his kingdom is through repentance or destruction. As in whenever a, someone believes in the name of the Lord Jesus, they were once in the kingdom of darkness. Now when they've repented and believed in Jesus, now they've been transferred into the kingdom. And in that individual, the kingdom of God is advancing through repentance. You follow me? And so the kingdom of God is, repent, is advancing through the preaching of the gospel. When, the, when Christ is breaking the bonds of sin and of Satan and transferring individuals into the kingdom, and there's two kingdoms. Like I said, there's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of love, kingdom of hate, hope, despair, life, and death. The kingdom of advancement, what we see is the kingdom of advancement doesn't come without opposition. That there's a greater thing that's happening through here that God is ruling his reign and his glory is being spread upon the earth through people believing in the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, the kingdom of darkness is opposing that. 
And today you and I can't think any different in the fact that, that anytime we're about kingdom expansion, there's going to be oppression from the other kingdom. There's going to be in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces. And I wrote it down, so a couple on the screen. And the greatest catalyst, listen to me, for the gospel advancement is Christ's soldiers carrying the torch of the gospel into enemy lands. We're soldiers for Jesus Christ. We're not just sons and daughters and part of the bride, but he has enlisted us into his army. And the way that we spread his kingdom, the way that we grow his borders, by as we grow, we're preaching the gospel. What God is doing is he is breaking the chains of bondage and so that in other people's lives, the glory of Jesus is known. The kingdom grows as his soldiers carry the torch. And I want you to know something, child of God. You are a soldier of Christ Jesus. Say, Justin, that sounds like we're in VBS. No, listen to me. You're a soldier for the kingdom. It's real. It's real into the world in which we live. If you're parents, you understand that. How, how much the world seeks after your children, their minds, their hearts, their affections, their attention. That's not random. That is the kingdom of darkness trying to overcome that which is light. But thanks be to God. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And in salvation, we're transferred out of that domain of darkness and placed into a kingdom of light uh, of Christ Jesus. And now he's enlisted us to carry that torch, to carry that gospel to share the good news, to raise our families in a way. Listen to me, wake up each day and put on the uniform. Every day we wake up, it's a battle. It's not just lovey-dovey. Listen to me, most of my Christian life, I say a lot of our Christian life, yes, there's joys in knowing Christ, but it's tough, it's difficult, it's a fight, it's a journey, it's a war. Wake up every day and let's put on our uniform because we're soldiers of Christ Jesus. Remember that there's a war taking place all around you. There's a war taking place for your soul, for your family, for your friends. And I really believe this, that God will not, he does not forsake a church who's devoted to kingdom expansion. And we can be sure of two things. We can be sure that we will face conflict in seeking to advance the kingdom. We'll be sure that Christ will win. That's what we see in, in Acts chapter 12, just a small picture of no matter how many precautions the enemy tried to make to keep the kingdom from advancing, it was futile and stupid for him to oppose himself against God because Christ will win. And listen to me, child of God, and this is to hope to encourage you. We don't engage as victims. We engage as victors because of who our captain is. The one who's called us and enlisted us, he is victorious. And so this, this call that we've, we've we, there's not just some of us, if we name the name of Jesus, you've been enlisted into his army and we're to carry that torch preaching the gospel so that he subdues foreign enemies. That being Satan and workers of evil. John Stott said it like this, indeed, throughout the church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with assurance that even with the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built surely on the rock. In Acts chapter 12, I said what we're seeing is this opposition in the church at war. It just seems like this cool picture that that Peter gets freed from jail. Now listen, this is hostility from the opposition and this is deliverance and advancement 
of our kingdom, of Christ's kingdom. There's more than just what meets the eye. We see the futility of opposition against God, and we see the faith of the soldiers of God. When we read this text, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Pause there for a moment. Ms. Felita, whenever I read that this week, I was like, that's one of those big butts that we like in the Bible, right? We talk about it all the time. There's this picture that we, there's, the, there's this, that, that should be set up the whole thing for us. Let me read it again. So Peter was kept in prison, but the earnest prayer was made for him by the church, was made to God by the church. Like that, that should set up the whole scenario that no matter what Herod is trying to do, the church is praying. Like whatever's going on, but the church was praying. Whatever Herod in- intended to do, but the church was praying. Now verse six, now when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarded regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. Next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter. Pause for a moment. As I'm reading this, just find the humor in these things. Like, Peter's just a dude. He's a dude. Like, what we know about Peter is he likes to fight, he likes to swing swords. Uh, we saw him in chapter 10 uh, that he just likes to, he's hungry, so he makes people go get him something to eat. And now he's so asleep that the light shining from heaven couldn't even wake him up from his sleep. Uh, and so, like, I felt that this week. Like, I, I told Ash about it. I said, yeah, that's you. I could elbow you in your rib cage, and you still won't wake up. So Peter was just a dude. And so literally, a heavenly light shining, and there are angels there, and the angel had to hit him to wake him up. It's just a funny thing. Uh, but the humor doesn't stop there. We'll get to Rhoda in a minute. Uh, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And, went out, and he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being uh, done by the angel was real. He literally thought he was still asleep. He's the dude. I mean, he was so asleep that the angel was like, dude, put your clothes on before we get out of here. <clears throat> he did not know what was being done by the angel was real and thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And check that said it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Verse 13, and when he knocked at the door, here it is, of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. Literally, you are, you're crazy. But she kept insisting that this was so, and they, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking and you could see, just hear it in the, in the text of his, he's probably freaking out now. The most wanted man in the town is now standing outside, probably getting, anyway, he began, he, he continues to knock. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They probably yelled out and verse 17 says, but he motioned to them to be quiet with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to 
the, to the brothers. Then he departed and went in another place. May the Lord bless and add favor to the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, uh, that we can enjoy just the reading your word, God, that we can laugh when things are funny and we can draw hope and, and just peace in this time. God, we pray now uh, that uh, you'll be with us and uh, that you give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear and hearts to believe. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I was handed this mic. I guess that means this one's messing up. Hello. There we go. Fun times at Cross Point. Uh, anyway, in this text, I'm going to break it down into four points. And I got real Baptists on us, and they all alliterate. Luke was making fun of me earlier today. They're going to alliterate. Uh, and so, and really, and really, these, really the four points, they're just observations from the text, but they can also be seen as almost weapons of warfare. And this idea of this, of a, we're soldiers and we're a kingdom advancing, there's going to be oppression whenever we're, we're seeking to advance the kingdom. Uh, we can also see them as weapons. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we see in this text is that there was unrelenting prayer. There was unrelenting prayer. We see that in verse 5 when it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. As I said earlier, this should have been an indicator that Herod's attempts weren't going to work out. That they kept him in prison. Uh, he's already got James, and now he went to the shot caller, if you will. He's going to take him. But I want you to notice, first of all, the manner in which they prayed. It says, earnest prayer for him was made to God on behalf of Peter. This word manner comes from the root word that literally means it's a, it's a medical term describing the stretching of muscles to its limits. And so whenever it says they earnestly prayed, it literally gives a picture of stretching muscles to its, to its, to its limits. There's, there's great effort or determination or great physical assertion. Like these, these believers weren't just praying like, oh God, we know you're good. No, physically, they were, they were stretching out muscles. They were physically asserting themselves. It's, it's strength. It's, a, it's aggressive. And it's the same word used in the, when Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty two forty four. 44. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So earnest that sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. The picture and the manner in which the church was praying is that they were, they were pouring out the maximal effort that they were capable of. They weren't just like lovey-dovey praying. They weren't just like, oh, God, remember, we know you're sovereign, you're good. They were literally physically stretching and straining themselves. Not only but the duration of them when they prayed, it's, it's, it's the picture of continuous. Remember whenever Peter was arrested, it was during the Passover. And Herod decided, I'm not going to, because of Jewish law, they wouldn't have, whatever, whatever Herod thought was a good idea to kill Peter, if he would have killed Peter during Passover, it wouldn't have worked out for him. It was a law that nobody, you couldn't kill somebody during Passover anyway. And so he was waiting until that time was over. And so there's a chance that Peter had been in jail for a week because uh, we're waiting for the week to be. There's, been a, there's a chance he's been in jail for a while. And we see it in verse 5 that they began praying then. But when we read verse 12, when Peter finally got to Mary's house, what were they doing? They were still praying. What do you think they were praying for? Probably what they were praying for in verse 5. They were continually praying. They were continuing praying. It was late night, early morning. Like I said, it could have been a week that they had been praying when we get to verse 12. It was unrelenting in both manner and frequency. John Stott in this military, military thought, he says, here are two communities 
the world and the church arrayed against one another, each wielding its weapon. The world is wielding the sword and the church is wielding the weapon of prayer. And there's, what we see is there that whenever Peter gets arrested and, and they know his fate, they go to the Lord. And listen to me, prayer for them wasn't just this, like I said, lovey-dovey communication with God for them. Prayer was their wartime walkie-talkie. It was them calling in their captain. Listen to me. Save Peter. Deliver Peter. Peter's in the hands of Herod. It was a wartime weapon that they were using, if you will. Adrian Rogers said all the doors were locked except the door of prayer. And I want to ask you as a child of God, do you see this as a weapon against the opposition who's our enemy? Because only God can break bondage, bring deliverance, and bring reconciliation. And my question for us this morning, just as a side note, is do we pray for others in this manner? They're specifically praying for Peter. I, when it comes to our prayer life and this wartime idea, whenever we're thinking about situations in our family, we think about situations that we seem too difficult, what is our manner and what is our frequency of prayer? How much time do we actually spend going to the only one who could do anything about it? Like, look at the precautions that Herod had taken. There were 16 soldiers assigned to him. There were two that were chained to him, one at one gate, one at the other gate, and every four hours, three hours, they would rotate. He took every precaution possible. They knew that only God could deliver this guy named Peter, so they went to war in prayer. Is anybody with me? How often do we actually think when we're thinking about a situation or an individual that, listen to me, only God can free them. Only God can deliver them. If we actually believe that, we would see prayer not just as this talking nonstop about gibberish. We would actually go to the Lord on behalf of people who need his help and delivery. In times of war, which is always church, we have to wield our weapon of prayer. And oftentimes our view of God is an indicator of our prayer life. For some of us, we may think God is too weak and he can't. For some of us, we may think that he's not concerned and he doesn't care. But I want you to see something. This is, we have this idea of prayer, and there's false teachings that go throughout Christianity. I call it Christianity in churches, we'll call it that. That uh, if you confess it, you can possess it. That God's greatest thing for you is if you just name it in prayer, you can go ahead and claim it, write it down, it's yours. That God, in essence, he works as like a bellboy for us, that we're staying in a hotel, and we decide to order uh, from the hotel, and so we just place our order, and he comes up, and he brings us our order, and if it's not right, then we can tell him to send it back down. We didn't like it that way, and we don't give him a tip afterwards because of the poor service. That God exists to be our genie, if you will, but I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that the church prayed for James like they did Peter? Absolutely they did. Absolutely they did. They didn't just go, oh gosh, we forgot to pray. No, they, I, I, probably, I think that when James was arrested, they began to pray. But so sometimes God's answer is yes, and sometimes it's no. But this is what I want you to see. 
They didn't abandon prayer just because they didn't work out like they thought it should. No, it intensified their prayer life. Like, do you see that? We have this idea that God just this, and if it doesn't work out the way I do it, then it was wasted. It was worthless. And no, it wasn't. God just said, listen to me, for the child of God, deliverance and healing, ultimately, his answer is always yes. It's just a matter of timing. Sometimes God chooses to deliver and heal on this side of eternity, but 100% of the time he will deliver on the other side of eternity. 100% of the time. And listen to me, if our, if our prayer to God is dependent upon him answering the way that we thought we should, then we're missing the mark of prayer. And we see it exemplified in the church here. They were praying for James. They had to be. It wasn't just Peter was better. But when God didn't answer their prayer for deliverance of James, they said, well, it is intensified so much that so we're going to stay up day and night, all day long. They're praying so much that, that, that when Peter gets there, they're doing exactly what they've been doing for a week. And if God did, listen to me, if we only pray to God because he's going to answer it the way that we think he should or want him should, then Jesus would have never made it to the cross. Do you remember the garden of Gethsemane whenever Jesus was praying, Father, if, it, if, if it's possible for this cup to pass that I don't have to drink. And Father says, no, you have to drink. And he says, all right, not my will, but yours. Just give me strength to do it. And I'm thankful that, God, that Jesus didn't stop what God had called him to do because God didn't necessarily give him exactly what he wanted when he prayed for it. We see unrelenting peace. I mean, unrelenting prayer. That it was a hopeless situation, what it looks like on the outside, but the church knew there's one that's greater than any chains, any iron gates, any soldiers that are locked up to Peter. And it's, it's God Almighty. And with God on my side and our side, access to the throne room, listen to me. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but there are no chains, no gates, no soldiers that can keep bound what God intends to be free. So the first thing we see is unrelenting prayer. The second thing we see is unfathomable peace. Look at verse 6. Luke talked a little bit about this last week. So all this is going on. It says no one heard. Now notice how Luke goes into detail of just how many precautions that Herod has been taking to keep this one dude in this jail cell so that he could kill him. Now you think about it. Now when Herod, some would say that probably Herod understood the power of God more than many Christians do. That Herod did everything he could to keep him bound. So much so that there's six, anyway, I'm not going down that, that's not a part of the sermon. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night, notice the timing. This is last minute. Like, it, God didn't answer this prayer immediately. There's something to be tall there. This is like, literally, the dude's about to die, and now things are about to happen. And when Herod was, bringing, uh, was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was, what, sleeping, Dude was sleeping. Notice he wasn't walking around the room like, you know, biting his fingernails or pacing around and nervous as he wasn't trying to negotiate a release. I would have been negotiating, right? I would have been figuring out how can I get these guys on my side that they can go to sleep and actually leave me the keys. Like, he wasn't pacing the room. Uh, it's, it reminds you of... Of uh, Josh mentioned this to Luke last week, and it, it reminds you of Jesus in the boat during the storm. There was just this peace that Christ had when the storm was rolling around. You have that picture of Peter here. Now, listen to me. He, the dude's about to die. Like, they're, like, that is his fate. Like, it's already been written. The soldiers are locked in. Plans are about to take place. And what the dude is, he is sleeping. 
I also want you to notice another word. Look at verse 7. It says, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone around the cell. The word cell here is only in the Greek, it's the word for the, in the Greek is only used right here. And it's literally the word for dwelling, as in home. As in, Peter was so confident in the sovereignty of God, no matter where he found himself, he was home. So he found himself in a jail cell. He's exactly where God has led him to be. He's exactly where he's supposed to be. He's at peace. He is sleeping Ultimately, is what his new home is for however long he's going to be there. So it's a crazy way that, that Luke writes that. It says dwelling at the time being. His body, check this out, his body was being guarded by soldiers, but heaven was guarding his heart. That on the outside, it looked like there was no way of escape, but at the inside, that he was at peace so much so that he was asleep. How, this helps out, how could Peter exhibit so much peace at this moment? James just got killed. I know so far, when Peter's been arrested, they've always gotten out, right? Remember, this is new for him. Somebody actually died. Like, not just anybody, but one of the, like one of the three, like one of the inner circles. Remember, who's the inner circles of Christ? Uh, Peter, James, and John. So we have the, the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, which Luke mentioned last week, James was the first one to die. John would be the last one of the apostles to die. The only one that doesn't die from martyrdom. But anyway, and then we have Peter. So if James is gone, then Peter's probably like, well, Herod ain't bluffing. But he's asleep. How? How is that even possible? And is that even accessible for us? Is that just the peace that Peter can have, or can you and I experience that same peace? That's the question. That's what we got to get at. Like it's one thing just to read like a whole, whole history story about this dude exhibited peace, but is that peace still available to us today? If it is, I want it. Anybody else? Like if it is, like I, I would like to experience If it is, I would like to be able to know that peace. And how, did, how could Peter exhibit so much peace at this moment? First of all, he trusted in Christ's promise. Luke mentioned this last week towards the end of the sermon that at the end of John that, 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 that Jesus had promised Peter that he would live to be an old life and he would die uh, a, a, a death, but he would live older. So he, tr- he trusted in Christ's promise. He knew the word of God. And we know that. And last week we read about Psalm 2, which is beautiful. Uh, one of the nations raged and, you know, they plot against the evil one and the, the one in heaven, he cried, God laughs because he set his king you know, what's really cool is that whenever persecution first began in the book of Acts, is Acts chapter 4. If you want to flip your Bible, go back there. This is after Peter and John are released and the church gets together and they pray for boldness. Do you remember what they actually quote? They quote Psalm 2, the very one that we read last week. And it says this, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And check out what they pray. It says, For this, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Check that whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets of Israel, to do, what's the word, whatever your hand and plan that predestined to take place. Peter knew the word of God so much so that he says, listen to me, the nations, Herod, they're raging, they're they're setting themselves against the Holy One, but he has set his anointed one. And no matter what they do, what they're actually doing is whatever God had predestined to take place. 
If, it, if it's true in Jesus, then Peter says, I know the word of God, though. If I find myself here, it's because God is going to do something through it. That God, that God is going to continue the preaching of the gospel through my life. And here I am. He knew God's word. He remembered God's past faithfulness. He'd been in a jail cell before. He knew stories of the Old Testament that one time there was a guy named Daniel who was thrown in a lion's den. Or three amigos that were thrown in a fiery furnace. He knew those stories of God's past faithfulness, of what he remembered growing up, of what he had experienced in his own life. He knew God's past faithfulness. And John MacArthur uh, says this, believers who trust in God's promises and past performances usually sleep well. I added this one this morning. He was where he was because he had been obedient to where God had called him to be. How could he find peace? Because he knew where he ended up is because he was just following the Lord. He's being obedient to what the Lord had called him to do. There's much peace in that, y'all. Much peace in that. Peter knew that God wasn't done with him yet, that his task had not been completed. Peter's, uh, John Piper says like this, for the child of God, you are immortal until God's task for you has been completed. That for each and every one of us, our days are numbered before they ever start. And that God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. And your days will not be cut short or grow longer any way that you try them to be. Eat all the healthy foods. You can enjoy your days more, but you're not going to extend your days. They're set before they ever get started. And there's a job and a task that our king has called us to do in his army. And there's nothing anybody can do to shorten those days. I'm immortal till he's done with me. And Peter knew that. Walking in obedience, listen to me, walking in obedience may not always result in ease, but it does peace. Peace in knowing that you are where God has planned you to be and that nothing can thwart God's purposes for you. And peace is a weapon for us. Just like prayer is a weapon, peace is a weapon that God gives us. The enemy may try to harass and try to deceive. We saw it in Psalm 3 this morning. It's, man, God's word is so good, isn't it? In Psalm 3, what does it start? Oh, Lord, how many of my foes, many arise against me. Here it is. Many saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him, from God. What do you think the enemy was whispering to Peter? Is it worth trusting Jesus now? Is it worth preaching Christ now? Where's your God at now? James is dead. You're about to be dead. Where's your God at now? But wield your weapon in the face of our accuser. Listen to me. This is how peace is a weapon. We say to our enemy, we say to our soul, I'm not where I am by accident. Where I find myself, it wasn't just by happenstance that I walked into where I'm at today. And God sovereignly rules all things. So no matter where I find myself, I can have peace as a weapon knowing that God has ordained my steps and he directs my path. And where I find myself is not by accident. Even if that's in struggles and hardship, it's not by accident up there. And not only that, but God's sovereignly ruling all things. And check this out. My conditions may not be favorable, but they're always fruitful. 
that no matter where I find myself, it's not by accident. God's sovereignly ruling all things, and it may not be the most favorable thing in the world, but it's always going to be fruitful. It's going to be fruitful for, for the kingdom. It's going to be fruitful even for my own life, and as I grow an understanding of who he is and what he can be in, in my life. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think we see that in, in verse 5. And what happens in verse 7? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is, listen to me, there is no doubt that prayer and peace are inseparable. The third thing we see in this text is there's unmatched power. I told you I was getting real Baptist today. And we're unmatched power. Go back to verse 7 again. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Again, see that humor of him striking Peter. Uh, it says, Behold, there's that, there's that transition, like something crazy is about to happen. It looks grim, it looks dark, but behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and he woke Peter up. And notice immediately that he says, get up, and what happened? The chains just fell off. And I thought about this yesterday. Herod had 16 guards guarding Peter. He had all the fortresses in the world and a gate that nobody could open, but it only took one angel whispering to Peter and hit him in the ribs to deliver him. It's stupid. It's futile to go against God. He sent one angel who didn't even have to do anything to anybody else. He just, Peter, let's wake up and let's go. Anyway, thought about that yesterday. And notice that Peter thinks he's dreaming, and we see that as you read through. He went out and followed him, verse 9. He did not know what was being done by the angel. It was real. He thought he was in a vision. And I, I think it's important here to understand that Peter doesn't even really realize what's going on, which means he can't be credited for an escape. It's not Peter that escaped from prison. It was God who delivered him. The dude's still asleep the whole time, just about. We can't worship Peter for this. We say, you know what? God delivered Peter. It's God who gets the glory for this. Check that out. It says, the iron gate, uh, verse 10. They went through, they had passed the first gate, so there was the, so he had two guards that he was locked to, right? Chains fell off, he's free from them. The next guard would have been at the first gate, just walked right past them. To get to the second gate, there would have been the next guard, walk right past them. And this is really beautiful. It says, when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. This dude, nobody gets through. Unless you have a key to it, nobody's getting through this thing. But check out the word it says. Uh, but the iron gate leading to the city, it opened for them on its own accord. Literally, where we get the word automatic. As in, they're walking through, and it's like you're going into Walmart, and the gate just goes... Matter of fact, every time you walk into Walmart or to Kroger, I want you to think about this. Every time you walk through and that door just goes, shoop. think about that time when Peter was in prison thinking he's about to die, but the angel showed up and delivered him in this automatic gate that didn't have any of that technology. went, come on through, Peter. Like, just like, that's a great thing to think about every time you go into them stores. 
And it probably brings some perspective because probably when you're walking through those doors, you may be thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to keep going. Well, God opened up an iron gate for Peter. He can open up a door for you as well. Anyway. Somewhere in my notes. And check out, it says in verse 11 that he finally came to himself. Imagine, like, I guess he woke up, like, he finally got the sleepy out of his eyes and he went, I'm not in there anymore. And he says to himself here, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The word expecting there, it's, it's an it's a interesting word. It shows you the, really the depravity of the Jews and how hostile they were. The only time that I think, and Luke can tell me if I'm wrong later, but this word expecting is the same picture of the word expectation we think about end times that Scripture gives. Like we're looking and we're anticipating something. Like we had this idea where we're looking, anticipating Christ's coming. That's how intense the Jews were of killing Peter. Like this anticipation, they were expecting it. They were looking for it. And Peter said, man, God has delivered me from their expectations. Soldiers, chains, nor iron gates can keep God from setting free the captive. Whatever Herod tried to do to keep Peter captive was no match for God who had a plan for Peter's life. Listen to me, Paul prayed that we would know this power. Paul prayed that as a child of God, listen to me, not only is prayer accessible to us, not only is that peace that Peter experienced accessible to us, the power that was directed towards Peter is accessible to us as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, Peter actually pray, Paul actually prays, verse 19, he says, that you will know what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, get, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice this power, first of all, that it is directed toward you, child of God. As in the full power of the Godhead in your, each, in your day, day, everyday life, when you feel hopeless and weakless, you feel obsolete or nobody's looking at you, nobody's noticing you, I want you to see that the full power of the Godhead is directed towards you. There's power accessible. It is direct. And listen to me. What, what is that power? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection, uh, resurrection power is directed toward all who believe. And notice it's where Jesus is. He's far above all authority, power, and dominion. Above every name, then, now, and later. Listen to me, child of God. We have the weapon of God's power in us and for us. We may not be asleep in a prison waiting execution, but the same keeping, saving, sustaining power that Peter experiences is the same one that's directed towards me and you. We see that our God breaks chains, frees prisoners, and ultimately he humiliates bullies. So we can believe like children, we can pray like children, we can sleep like children, we can laugh like children, because who our God is. We have a joyful confidence in our king, in our captain.
Fourthly, Peter now realizes he's in the street. The most wanted man is now exposed in the street. So what does he do? We see it in verse uh, 13. It says, now, sorry, I'm, I'm still in Ephesians. That won't work out, will it? <clears throat> verse 12, I was like, my notes are saying 12, but that, anyway. Uh, so when he realized this, he realized, all right, I'm free. I'm not in, I'm not chained to these guys anymore. I am free. It says, now when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Time out for a moment. This is the first picture where we get of house churches that are being, that are, that are starting. So churches used to meet in like this upper room or places, and now they're getting so big, they're now meeting in different house churches. And usually it would be whoever was the richest Christian who had the biggest house, that's where they would go. And that's just how it is. And so uh, we see how to steward and worship God through what he gives you. Anyway, uh, House of Mary. So we introduced a, a guy named John Mark, uh, who would eventually go on to the first missionary journey with Paul, uh, who gets fired halfway through. It uh, doesn't work out good for him, uh, uh, but actually God had a greater plan. It's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and so anyway, so we introduced to John Mark for the first time. So anyway, uh, evidently, this was well known because Peter knew exactly where to go. So he goes straight to Mary's house because they are there. And check out what they are doing. The fourth point is there's unbelievable praise in this text. And that's just a play on words. Uh, unbelievable praise. We see that they go, he goes to Mary's house. So what are they doing? They were gathered together, verse uh, 12, and they were praying. They were still praying, I believe, for what they started in verse 5. I think they're still praying for Peter's deliverance. So catch that. Like you, like, let that sink in for a moment, all right? So they've been praying for maybe up to a week, day and night, night and day, for this guy to be delivered. Everybody with me? Now you're about to see the humor of this text and really the conviction of this text. It's exactly what they've been praying for, that they've been stretching out their prayer muscles, that they've been laying down uh, before the Lord, going to war, if you will, for this guy. And so they go to the house of Mary, now notice what happens in verse 14. He goes there, and a girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized him, and out of joy, she ran inside. She didn't open a gate. All right, she's a little girl. We'll give, it, you know, give her the benefit of the doubt. She goes into the room to the people that have been praying for maybe up to a week, day and night, night and day, ferociously praying and saying, Peter's outside. And they say, you're beside yourself. You expect us to believe what we've been praying for actually came true? <laughs> you actually believe that we're going to believe that everything that we asked God to do, he did. And we see it by how they respond. First of all, it said that she insisted. That means over and over again, she was telling them, like, no, 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 no. And so they finally compromise and say, it's his spirit. Or he says angel, as in guardian angel. So there was the Jewish belief, we don't know if it's biblical or not, but there's the Jewish belief that every individual had a guardian angel. Part of a small group question is, do you believe in guardian angels? Don't you tell me? Anyway, uh, they believe that every individual had an angel. And what would happen is, is that whenever someone would die, they would go to heaven and their angel would appear. So this is literally what the scripture is telling us when it says this is angel. They had an easier time believing that Peter had died and went to heaven than God actually delivered them, delivered him from jail. Unbelievable. You, we cannot believe that that actually happened. <laughs> uh, the, 
The answer to their prayers was standing at the door knocking, but they lacked the faith to open it up. It was so unbelievable that the praying church couldn't even believe it. What it tells us is that we aren't the first people who need a bigger concept of what God can actually do. That we're not the first people who actually struggle with actually believing what they're asking the Lord to do. They went earnestly, they went ferociously, continuously for this one thing, and when it happened, they couldn't believe it. So there's a lot of little rabbits I can chase here, like, are we praying for things that if they happen, the only explanation is that God did it? Like when it comes to your family, when it comes to our church, are we praying prayers that the only reasonable explanation of those things happening is that God did it? Or whenever we go and somebody says, hey, I've been sick and will you pray for me? Will you pray for God to heal me? When we pray to God for healing, do we actually expect him to do that? Like, do we actually expect him to do what we're asking him to do? Or are we just doing it because that's the Christian thing to do? We need to have our concept of what God can do adjusted. Meanwhile, Peter's still standing outside. And you can imagine the knocks probably grew more intense, like, God, Rhoda, Rhoda, come back here. And all you can hear back there is, you're out of your mind. No, no, it's me, it's me. Like, it's intense, and Peter's just standing out there, and then they finally decide to go. And evidently, when they saw him, they tried to break out into praise. There was an unbelievable praise. That's where I get they began to break out, and Peter has to go, shh, shh, shh. Like, if my knocking didn't get me caught, your yelling's definitely going to. Like, shh. Keep it down. And we end like this. He shushes them, and he does three things. And really kind of setting up the rest of the book of Acts in a little bit is, first of all, he tells them what happened. He gives, he praises them, I mean, he praises God for what had happened, and he, he says, listen to me. An angel appeared, he hit me in a ribcage, uh, woke me up, kinda, and God delivered me out of the hand of Herod and what the Jews expected to be. Second thing he does is goes tell James and the brothers. So here, evidently at some point, there's a lot of reasons why people think, like James, uh, he could fit in well with those those Jews that were come, becoming Christians, he could speak all the, the, you know, the law talk and stuff like that. So uh, I think a lot of people believe he became like the leader in Jerusalem because he was not like Peter who would just tell those guys they were idiots. He would actually be more like, include, anyway. So James kind of becomes the leader and there's some brothers there that would be the apostles. And, and then here's what's crazy. It says what happens to Peter. And then he departed and went to another place. This is the last time we see Peter in the book of Acts other than chapter 15 when he comes in for Jerusalem Council. The rest of the book of Acts is going to be Paul and his missionary journeys. Like, this is like him. Deuces, y'all got it. I'm going to go plant some churches over here. I'm going to go do this thing. And so how in the world, what do we get out of this text? Is that the church, there was literally unbelievable praise. They were, they were praising God for something they couldn't even believe that happened. They were praising even in the midst of this. And, and there's a bunch of things. We praise, prayer, praise is a weapon as, as, as even when Peter was sushing them because 
it gives glory to God for what is going on. So no matter what's going on in our life, and I heard one guy say, let our, let our praise become a problem to our problems. Is the idea of that we have these things that are going on, we praise, we're glorifying God even in the midst of our junk. It increases our confidence, it fuels our obedience, it frustrates our enemies, and it te- testifies to others of what the Lord has done. So how do we respond to this passage this morning? There's a lot there. When you think about praying, prayer, what's the manner in which we pray and the frequency in which we pray? And how do we respond whenever it seems like God's not answering that prayer or answering the way that we should? It should intensify it, that we pray harder and stronger than ever before. Hey, listen, this peace, this peace is available to you. First of all, this peace that Peter had started that he had peace with God. Peter could stand in that jail cell not fearing death at all because his number one peace is that he had, he, had, he had peace with his creator. He had peace because the son of God became man. He took on flesh. And he lived a life that was perfect. And he died a death. And when he died that death, the very wrath of God was poured upon him. Because listen, Scripture tells us that we're just not bad people that make mistakes. Scripture says we're the enemies of God. We're the Herods. Listen to me. Without Jesus, we're all Herod in this story trying to rob God of his glory, trying to disrupt what God's got going on. And we deserve what we'll see next week that Herod gets. A nasty, ferocious death where there's no hope and there's no grace. That's what we all experience, we should experience because we're all born enemies of God. There is no peace to be had. We should bear the wrath of God, but the Son of God bore the wrath of God upon a cross. He literally poured it like a cup like he drank it, like all the wrath of God, the Son of God drank, so that you and I can be reconciled to that God which we were once enemies of, now we become sons and daughters of. That now that once God, the once that we used to spit in his face, now we're heirs with his son. That that peace, that, that, or that, that, that the, the, the brokenness, that gap, that chasm that separated us from God has now been, we've been brought near, and now God is not one that we fear, but one that we find peace with. There is no peace in the jail cell if there is not peace with you and God. There is no peace in sickness and in cancer and in struggles and in relationships and in anything else if there is no first peace with your creator. And we have peace with the one who created us and has marked all of our days already before they started, then man, we could have peace in a lot of places. But if we don't have that peace, we can't. There is no peace to be experienced apart from peace in Christ. Do you know that peace this morning? Have you trusted in Christ Jesus as your peace? Scripture says that he is our peace. Not he just brings peace, but he is our peace. He's the one that brings us peace. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you, I'm not saying have you trusted in, 
and and church membership or you've trusted in your friends, you've trusted in bank accounts, you've trusted in this, that, and the other, or even knowledge, have you trusted in Christ? Because that's the only possible way for us to have peace here on earth. Child of God, if you know Jesus, you can experience this peace by trusting his promises, by remembering his word, remembering his past faithfulness, which gives us confidence he will continue to be there. And we can look at this story and go, peace is available. Peace without understanding. That's unfathomable. Know that the power that's directed towards you. Man. Each and every day, the power of God is directed towards you. How much different would it be if we woke up every morning going, I'm weak, but the power of the Godhead woke me up for another day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you, you bless it. God, that you just speak to hearts, God. God, for somebody in here this morning who doesn't know you, hasn't trusted in Christ, who is our peace, that's looking for peace in any other place, God, that today you will draw them to yourself. Today that they will confess Jesus as Lord, that they can have peace between you and themselves. God, I pray that you just use these words of your text to edify your saints, to encourage your saints, to pray hard, pray big, pray continuously, pray and believe that you can do it. God, be with us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I'm asking you to stand. As the band leads us, you move as you need to, if you need to make where you're sitting, uh, an altar to pray if you need to come down front. Uh, We'll be standing in the back. Pastors will if you need to talk. You just move as the Lord leads.